0: This is Mark Gerson and I'm the Rabbi's husband. You are the God
1: of the if you
0: Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson and I'm the Rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Rick Hodes, who exemplifies what it means to be both a good and a great man, and is by himself reason enough to be proud to be a Jew. Rick went to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia in 1990 to serve the Joint Distribution Committee as the doctor for the Ethiopian immigrants who were then leaving to make Aliyah to go to Israel. Rick noticed a problem of TB in that group and started hundreds of people on a modern short-course supervised therapy that he developed and saved countless lives in the process. Upon seeing the extraordinary healthcare needs in Ethiopia outside the Jewish community, Rick decided to extend his short stay in Ethiopia forever. He has devoted his life to treating the poorest people in the world in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is a country that has one doctor for every 10,000 people. By comparison, the United States has 26 times as many doctors per capita, and Israel has 35 times as many doctors per capita. Rick consequently treats everything from heart disease to spine disease to cancer. He has also worked as a doctor to refugees from Rwanda, Zaire, Tanzania, Somalia, and Albania, and is the adopted father to five Ethiopian children, which is the maximum allowed by American law. Rick is the subject of the HBO documentary Making the Crooked Straight and the Marilyn Berger book This is the Soul, The Mission of Rick Hodes, and Rick continues today as the medical director of the Joint Distribution Committee in Ethiopia. Rick, welcome to the Rabbi's Husband. Thank you, Mark. It's great seeing you. Great seeing you, too. Now, your chosen passage is so completely appropriate to you. So let's start with that passage. And then I'm going to give you another passage, which we haven't even talked about. But your chosen passage is Proverbs 106.3. 3. Blessed are they who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. So, Rick, what is going on with this passage and why is it so meaningful to you?
1: Well, I love the commentary on this because in Ketubot, in the Talmud on page 50a, they talk about what this means because how can you do righteousness? How can you do tzedakah all the time? Because sometimes you're in the bathroom and sometimes, sometimes you're sleeping and sometimes you're sick. So you can't, I mean, none of us can do anything all the time.
0: Right. And and just to clarify, you're referring to the, the last clause of this, which is so interesting. I did not even focus on it. Who do righteousness at all times? And so what you're saying is how do you do righteousness when you're asleep, when you're in the bathroom, when you're at the Yankee game? Yeah, exactly. That's a very good question, right? It's a great question. So what's your answer?
1: I mean, because it's not like you have a poor person, you have a I'm a doctor, you know, you have a sick person, you can help. So when I'm in my office, sometimes I can really help patients. But what are you supposed to do when you're at home? So the rabbi in the Talmud has a great answer. He says take orphans into your house. And by raising an orphan 24 hours a day, you are doing righteousness all the time.
0: And you did that five times.
1: I've done it oh countless times. I mean, I adopted five, but I've raised more, many, many more kids.
0: Right, I remember you, you telling um, Erica and me a while ago that you couldn't stand the sight of an empty part of the floor in your home when there were children on the streets in Ethiopia.
1: Right, I mean, I sent one kid to... Private school, and I had half a mattress free on the living room floor. So it felt bad that I had half a mattress free on the living room floor, and I couldn't like it. Somebody could be helped by that. So we went to a rural village in Gojam, and we brought back the brother of somebody I was I was helping, one of my patients, and he moved into our house, and I ended up adopting him. He's now you know he graduated from Kenyon College. So I mean, this is a kid who would have been a barefoot peasant his whole life, and he's you know completely changed now. So
0: how many children are there living in your home um, on an average night?
1: Well, right now, I mean, I'm, I'm not there and um, my oldest and, and my son is not there, but I have probably, I have relatives of my adopted kids. When you're, when you're literally the rich uncle in a family, then you get to pay school fees for your relatives. So I have a bunch of relatives living there and I have a few patients living there as well. Sometimes I think God just delivers people Like, for example, I was at Mother Teresa's and I uh, where I, I I'm a doctor, also Mother Teresa's mission. And I was waiting 15 minutes for the guard to show up to unlock the gate to let me out. Meanwhile, somebody knocked on the door who had very bad eyes and he said, I can't see, I need help. And I know the nuns don't like to admit them. So I took him to my house and got his eyes tested. He needed glasses that were minus 16. So he was like severe, severe myopia. And He had a bit of hydrocephalus and I got his brain looked at. We did an MRI and then he went back to his village, but he was an orphan and he ended up coming back the next year. And now he's a high school kid and he wants to be a physicist. And he lives with you? He lives in my house. Yeah.
0: Wow. So on an average night, you might have how many? 15, 20 people living in your home?
1: Oh, no, 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 no. Maybe eight or nine. How many square feet? Well, I mean, we we made the garage into a bedroom And then there's a couple of other bedrooms in the back where they they call these an Ethiopia service quarters. So traditionally, if you have a lot, I don't have a big house, but I have some extra bedrooms. So some of the kids live there. My son's sister lives there. She has two children. So we have two young kids as well. So when you reflect
0: on on, um, 106.3, do righteousness at all times, which you do, um, how does the feeling of, now the translation here is either blessed are or happy are they who do that. How do you experience that blessing or that happiness?
1: When I see these people who are alive because I went to work that day or because I opened up my home, I just feel fantastic. Like I know that I am personally making a difference in the world and that's just the greatest feeling in the world.
0: Well, that, And that is the most profound interpretation of, of this verse. So at all times, that's what the rabbi and the Talmud was saying was that if you bring in orphans at all times, you'll be doing righteousness and you will receive this blessing and feel this happiness. Right. And the first two children you adopted, when was it, 1999 and... Uh,
1: So I met them in 90, these are two abandoned orphans with TB of the spine. One of them had a 90 degree angle in his back. One of them had a 120 degree angle in his back. All I wanted to do is get them surgery. I could not get them surgery.
0: Is that because there are so few surgeons?
1: Well, this was even even in America. I mean, nobody, this is such technically difficult surgery. Even a lot of people said, like, don't touch them. This is just not possible. But anyway, I decided I have to try. And I, I sent their picture around and nobody would do anything you know for money or for free, for that matter. Then I got this brilliant idea. I decided I could adopt them, add them to my American health insurance, and somehow get them surgery in the United States. Now, the problem is when you adopt an abandoned orphan, they become yours for life. so on one hand, I could adopt them and get them fix their backs. On the other hand, we'd have to spend the rest of our lives together. so I didn't know whether I wanted that much permanence, and so I decided, okay, I have to think about this. And I was walking along and I looked up at the Almighty and I just said, what do you want me to do? And, you know, it's not like I get answers from God all the time, but he literally sent me a fax to my brain three days later. And it was like, it arrived right there.
0: How did it feel? Like, did, like, did you know it was coming? Was, it, was there a moment of difference? No, no,
1: it just arrived. And it was just like a moment of clarity. And I mean, it was as if I was receiving a fax. And it's, you know, the answer was, I'm offering you a chance to help these boys. Don't say no. So I said, okay. And I went ahead and I adopted them and I added them to my health insurance. I brought them down to Dallas, Texas. I needed needed to find a host family in Dallas, Texas. I didn't know anyone in Dallas, Texas. So I called the Jewish news. I'd never been to Texas, okay? I called the Jewish newspaper. I look up, you know, you Google Jewish newspaper, Dallas, Texas. I called them up and I said, my name is Rick Hodes. I'm an American Jewish doctor. I've adopted two Ethiopian non-Jewish kids. I'm bringing them to Dallas for spine surgery. And I want to know if anyone in the Jewish community might want to help me. And I want to take out an ad in your newspaper to look for help. So this woman, her job is selling advertising. And she said, doctor, this is a wonderful story, but you're wasting your time. And I said, what should I do? And she said, call Jewish Family Service and ask them what to do. She said, and there's a woman who knows everybody in the community. Call her. She, she'll, she'll give you some ideas. Her name is Janie Schultz. So I can mention her name. I called Jewish Family Service, leave a message. Call Janie Schultz, leave a message. Janie Schultz calls me back an hour later. Is Janie Schultz returning your call? Can I help you? And I said, yes, my name is Rick Hodes. I'm a doctor for the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And then I said, have you ever heard of this? And she said, yeah, my father's on your board. I said, what? I said, I have no idea. And I said, well, listen, here's the story. I've adopted these Ethiopian kids. They have TB of the spine. They're going to get surgery at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital. And I want to know if anyone in the Jewish community might be willing to help. And I'm just a stranger calling Janie Schultz. Janie Schultz said to me, well, this is a wonderful story. I'll take the kids. And she said, but now that I've said that, I really do have to ask my husband because he's the one who's at home with our four small kids. So she said, but he'll say yes. So plan on it. So this was like in January of 2002. And six months later, I brought the kids to her house. And this is a stranger. She's opening up the house. I I let her know we were coming. She said, oh, we're going to be away on vacation, but we'll leave you the keys We'll have somebody meet you at the airport. We'll leave you the keys to the car and the keys to the house. So again, like I'd never ne- met this lady, but she's giving me her house. She's giving me the keys. But you're a Jew and she's a Jew. That's all you needed. Yeah. And, and she said, the kids are going to be here during the school year. I'm on the board of the Modern Orthodox Day School. Would you like them to go to school? I said, yeah, of course. So they both entered in elementary school. One was like in third grade, one was in fifth grade. And they went to uh, Akiba Academy and they had their surgery they lived in janie's house they lived in the jewish community for 6 months and they've been back and forth ever since and janie's family has been back and forth to ethiopia ever since did janie actually live there for high school so he graduated from yavna the modern orthodox high school in dallas texas and he's now a bi- he's now a businessman in addis ababa
0: and he, and he's okay surgically
1: he's okay yeah
0: the, the impossible surgery happened successfully in texas and he's okay
1: yeah yeah I mean, and that, and that, so three of the five kids I adopted had very bad backs, and between them, they've had six or seven surgeries, most of which were done at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas.
0: Wow. Now, let's move to a different passage, which is from Deuteronomy 4, 6. And I was just discussing it this afternoon with this group of uh, evangelical pastors with whom I study. And it says, uh, surely uh, you shall safeguard and perform them. This is the, uh, uh, the decrees and orders in the Torah for it is, Your wisdom and discernment in the eyes of the peoples, who shall hear all these decrees and who shall say, Surely a wise and discerning people is this great nation. This is the great call to the Jews from Moses and God to act so that the nations will consider us a wise and discerning people. And I know that you, as one of the few doctors in Ethiopia who've cared for so many, almost all Gentiles, Christians, Muslims, and I suppose people of neither faith in Ethiopia, how have you lived this? How have you seen? the relationship or the thinking of non-Jews, perhaps people who've never met a Jew or seen a Jew before, change when they encounter you as a proud and forthright Jew and some of the work you've done with Israel?
1: So um, I was hired by the GDC to be the doctor for the Ethiopian immigrants to Israel. Previously, I had spent two and a half years teaching at the medical school. So I have been the doctor for 1% 1% of Israel before they became Israeli for all the Ethiopian immigrants. Then I started volunteering at Mother Teresa's mission and I started working on behalf of the GDC with refugees in Rwanda, in Zaire, in Tanzania, and so on. We have amazing things that happening because people know me. When, I mean, I don't go around telling everybody I'm a Jew, but it's just sort of known.
0: Well, I remember, I remember you, you telling Erica and, and, and me and our, our family a while ago, there was some expression in one of the communities that instead of, go to hell, it was go to Israel? Yeah. yeah so, so what's the derivation of that expression and how did you interact with it as a doctor?
1: So I had a guy come to me. I, I was called by a Catholic nun from three hours outside Addis Ababa saying there's a Muslim boy who was attacked by a hyena. And they, it ripped off his head. It, he lost his scalp. He lost his eye. He lost his ear. And he lost the top of his jawbone. And he needed major, major surgery. His father thought he was dead. His father saw this happening. His father said to himself, If this hyena is going to kill my son, he's going to have to kill me first. He ran out of his house. He starts punching the hyena, knowing that he could be killed in a second. The hyena ran away. He thought his son was dead. He got his son to a Catholic hospital, and the wonderful nuns there nursed him back to health, but he still needed major, major reconstructive surgery. They called me. I transferred the kid to Mother Teresa's mission, and I sat down with the dad, and he told me this amazing story. I mean, this is a kid who needs $100,000 of plastic surgery. And I said, oh my gosh, like you have just given me the biggest headache of the month. I don't know what to do. Highly, highly complex stuff. I came home that night, my friends, the Schultz family, Ron Romanner and Janie Schultz from Dallas, Texas were in my house. And I said, you wouldn't believe this kid I got today. It was mauled by a hyena. I don't know what to do. He just needs huge plastic surgery. And Ron Romanner said, Rick, I'm very active in this organization called Friends of the Western Galilee Hospital. Send me the information. I'll send it on to Western Galilee. So that night I made, you know, an important PowerPoint of all the of the medical, the very graphic things. I sent it to Ron. Ron sent it on to Western Galilee. Two days later, the head of the hospital himself called me and he said, Dr. Rick, we want this kid. Get him here and we will take care of him. We went to the passport office. The head of the passport office said, I need a letter from an Ethiopian doctor. I said, I'm an Ethiopian doctor. I'm licensed in this country. I can give you the letter. He, he sort of thought the whole thing was fishy. And I said, listen, here's the kid right in front of you. I will take off his bandages. Right now, I will show you that I'm not lying. They ha- I, I speak Amharic. And he had a conversation with the dad's, the kid's father, for about five minutes, the father said, yeah, he's telling the truth. He really was attacked by a hyena. He takes off the, you know, he said, if he takes off the bandage, you're just going to see a head full of blood. The guy said, okay, I believe you, I believe you. And he said, come back in 24 hours, we'll give you a passport. We got a passport. We went to, we went to the Israeli embassy. The Israeli ambassador was herself an Ethiopian who had left Ethiopia when she was 12 years old. She came back as ambassador to Israel. She, she heard that I was in the consular section. And she called me on my cell phone. She said, when you finish, come on over. We went over to her her office. We sat, we had tea with her. She said, hold it a minute. Stay where you are. We stay there with her husband. She walks out. She walks to her house, which is right next door on the same compound. She came back with two pairs of pants and two shirts. She said to the man, I have a son the same size. Here's some clothes for your son to wear while he was in Israel. We walk out and this man turned to me and he said, Dr. Rick, what kind of ambassador gives you clothes from her own kids? And I said, a Jewish mother. And he said, this is unbelievable. He just shook his head. So a week later, we're ready to go. I drive them to the airport. We're literally in the the, um, check-in lounge. And I said, how do you feel? And he said, I'm nervous. And I said, why are you nervous? He said, because We don't like Israel. He said, in my country, that's how you say it in Amharic. He said, if we want to insult somebody, we don't say go to hell. We say go to Israel because Israel and hell are the same thing. And I said, well, you'll see. He gets off the plane in Israel.
0: Now, this, of course, that expression is not all of Ethiopia, but just where this. No, this is
1: like his little area, his his village, they'd say. Um, No, Ethiopians in general like us a lot. So he goes goes to this hospital, spends nine weeks in and out of the hospital. At one point, the kid was immobilized for 10 days while they, they made a new rib, uh, a new mandible, or a jawbone out of his rib, okay? So they took part of his rib, they made a new, the top of the jawbone, which is called the ramus of the mandible.
0: And these are Jewish and Arab surgeons in the Western Galilee?
1: Yeah, not only that, it was a hospital that had its own mosque. And a lot of the patients were local Arab people. And this guy came back and not only this guy came back and he said, Israel is the most wonderful country in the world. He said, you wouldn't believe what I saw. He said, they were treating Jewish people. They were treating Muslim people. He said, and every morning they would get, we would get delivery of new patients from the Syrian border because these are not even Israeli people, but they're being pushed across the border because they're injured and they would come and they would join us on the wards and they would get free treatment. He said... These are not even their people. They're from a different country. Look what they're doing. And he went on Ethiopian television and he told the story. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Not, not only, my only job, my only initial goal was to help this kid. But in fact, it got Israel a huge amount of publicity because this guy had such a positive experience in Israel.
0: How, how, did, the, how did the surgeries, I'm, I'm sure you're saying multiple surgeries. How did the surgeries for this child turn out?
1: They turned out great. They rebuilt. They rebuilt his life. They rebuilt his head. They rebuilt his jaw. They patched up his eye. He he can't see, but uh, he had a very very successful surgery. Let me tell you another story. Um, before we we you know uh, the main thing I do right now in my practice is spinal deformity, and I have the largest collection of the most deformed spines in the world. Some have neurofibromatosis. One third have tuberculosis of the spine, which is called Pott's disease. A lot have different forms of scoliosis. Some have neuromuscular disease. Uh, my surgical partner, who you know is Dr. Boachi in Ghana, who's very religious Baptist, and he and I work together wonderfully. So, we had a group of people that we were about to send to Ghana, and these are local Ethiopians. They're Christians, they're Muslims, they're everything. And I explained that we raised our money from the American Jewish community, the American Christian community, and they have donated money for your kids to get surgery in Ghana. And then we all stand and we all say a prayer. And I say, In America, doctors are afraid to pray with their patients. And in Ethiopia, patients like to pray. And the way I do it is I stand up and everybody stands up and I say, listen, in our room, we have representatives of all the major religions. I'm a Jew. This one is a Catholic. This one is Protestant. This one is Ethiopian Orthodox, which is the main religion in the country. We always have a bunch of Muslims. One third of Ethiopia is Muslim. And I said, we all believe in God and we all want what's best for the kids. So just take a moment, speak to the Almighty from your heart and ask him for success. And Ethiopians love this. Nobody hesitates. Everybody stands up. They pray. They talk to God for a minute or two. And they say, okay, thank you very much. One woman I heard later was a Muslim woman dressed in traditional Muslim garb. She told my assistant, she said, I had no idea that there were Jews involved with this. She said, my brother-in-law is in jail in Ethiopia for radical Muslim activity. And my kid's life is being saved by a Jewish doctor and the help of the American Jewish community. This is just amazing. So in her mind, when she thinks of Jews, when she thinks of Israel, she thinks about her healthy kid. And it puts a completely different picture on everything. One more story. This This is fantastic. So I was working... I was working in a refugee camp in Tanzania with refugees from the tribe called the Bembe tribe. Um, and they had they had some political issues and they crossed the border into Tanzania. They were in refugee camps and I was the medical director of a refugee camp. I probably had about 4,000 people. I had a bunch of other health personnel, but I was the boss and I was sitting in clinic, you know, all day long seeing patients. It was, it was prayer time and I put on a kippah and I was... Saying mencha, the uh, afternoon prayers, and some refugees saw this and they said, You're a Muslim, yes? And I said, No, I'm not Muslim. I'm a Jew. And they thought, they know that if you wear a little thing on your head, you're Muslim. So they said, You're a Jew. We don't know this religion. What is this? And I said, Oh, we're from the Old Testament. You know, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. We only follow the Old Testament. We don't follow Jesus at all. We follow Moses. And so then they said to me, But doctor, what's the point of your religion? You know the story. Teach me the Torah on one foot. So they're saying to me, what's the point of your religion? You know, and like, I'm in a refugee camp with these semi-educated refugees from- You're having a
0: completely authentic Rabbi Hillel moment.
1: Exactly. So I thought to myself, what am I going to say to these people? And I said, the Jewish people were asked by God to be an example to the world of three things. Honesty, morality, and kindness. That's the point. And they said, Wow, what a wonderful religion. So
0: Well, you encapsulated it perfectly. And yeah. you live it. And you show them through and your just, example, which is so much more powerful that, than I any words.
1: Top, like I thought of that instantly. It's not like <laughs> it's not like I was preparing for that discussion.
0: Do you find that people's happiness increases to the extent that they serve others with depth? Oh yeah. Because you do this as profoundly as anybody in the world. And most people think that you pursue happiness by identifying the things that you like to do, whether it's baseball or ice cream or movies or whatever. But you have devoted your entire life to immersing yourself in the poorest place in in the world, working with and for the poorest people in the world without anything that I would consider a necessity, let alone a luxury. And does this sacrifice of a life bring happiness?
1: Yeah, I'm very happy. I mean, I don't really think about it, but I'm perfectly happy, yeah. I don't have a refrigerator at home. I don't have hot water in my house. I, I sleep on a mattress on the floor. This is fine. How do you feel when you
0: visit the United States, like you're visiting Tennessee right now?
1: I do fine. I'm, uh, I'm, very, I'm very flexible. I can do both. I can do both quite easy. And you know, sometimes, I just have to tell one of these stories because these happen to me all the time, but sometimes like God just arranges things in the most amazing ways. I mean, like I had a kid at Mother Teresa's Mission, who couldn't walk because his bones broke very, very easily. He had osteogenesis imperfecta, brittle, brittle bone disease. So I, I went to America. I called up the Osteogenesis Imperfecta Foundation, and I said, I need to speak to an OI specialist to give me some advice. They said, okay, here's the phone number of Dr. Jay Shapiro in Baltimore. Give him a call. So I called Dr. Shapiro. He speaks to me for an hour and a half. We learned... He giving me a primer on this disease. And he says, you need to give a drug called pemidronate. It's an IV drug. There's something called the Montreal Protocol. The drug is made by Novartis, see if you can find it. So I didn't have time to look for it. I go back to Ethiopia and the following Saturday, I'm doing rounds at Mother Teresa's mission and I'm bending down with this kid. And I had a bunch of American medical students with me. And I said, well, I talked to this guy named Jay Shapiro, world's expert in Baltimore. He says, I need to get a drug called pamidronate made by Novartis. It's going to help this kid's bones get strong. The moment I said pomidronate, somebody tapped me on the shoulder. And I looked up and it was some white guy walking by in back of me. And he said, yeah, did you say the word Novartis? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, I'm just visiting Mother Teresa's mission today, but I work for Novartis. Can I help you? And I said, yeah, actually... You make a drug that I need called Pemidronate. And he said, Well, actually, he said, I work in the Rome office. And he said, Let me see what I can do. For years, my program in Ethiopia was was managed by an Italian Jew named Manlio Della Riccia working out of JDC's Rome office. This guy, who I met at Mother Teresa's, because I said the word Pemidronate and Novartis at the right time, donate got Novartis to donate Pemidronate to us. Manlio hand carried it in. We gave it to this kid and he started walking again. Wow. I mean, and that's just because I said the word permitronate at the right time. I mean, it's, it's like unbelievable. Like these things have to be arranged by the Almighty. Absolutely. There's no, there's no other way to explain it. I mean, one
0: of the very few people in the world is walking by you in Ethiopia when you happen to mention the name of this seemingly obscure drug and the communication, the odds of that happening are, in, are, are incalculably low, but it happened.
1: And this happens to me all the time. I mean, let me give you another example. The head of Boeing for Ethiopia was a Jewish guy. He was going off to Italy for a week with his wife. But Boeing was paying for his room at the Sheraton Hotel and breakfast for two. So he said, Rick, take my room at the Sheraton. There's two beds. He said, you sleep there. One of your kids can sleep there and have breakfast in the morning. So I said, fine. So I was for a week. I I lived at the you know, with the permission of the Hilton, of the Sheraton and so on, I was living at the Sheraton hotel and eating breakfast courtesy of uh, this guy. So one night I'm at home, I was doing some things at home, 10 o'clock at night, I went back to the Sheraton, get into the elevator. There's one white woman in the, in the elevator with me. And I said, hello. And she said, hello. And I said, so what are you doing in Ethiopia? And she said, I'm part of a medical team. I said, really? Um, What are you working on? She says, We have two teams. We have a heart team and we have a face team. And I said, Oh, do you need some patients? She said, Well, we have too many heart patients, but we don't have any face patients. And I said, This is 10 o'clock at night. I said, What time are you guys eating breakfast tomorrow? She said, Six o'clock. I said, Okay, I'm going to join you for breakfast. I joined them for breakfast, six o'clock in the morning. And I said, I'm the doctor at Mother Teresa's mission. I can get you a bunch of kids who need cleft surgery. And I have a woman with a huge tumor coming out of her face. And she needs really good surgery. And I had my computer with me. I showed them all this stuff. Later on that day, they took a break and they saw the patient. They said, okay, we will operate her on Tuesday. They said, but Monday, you need to get her a CAT scan. And we can't do this surgery unless we have a CAT scan. Now, at the time, there weren't a lot of CAT scans in Ethiopia. Here's one other problem. Monday was Yom Kippur. Wow. And I was expected in synagogue to be part of the minion. Well, I just said, okay, this comes first. I fasted all day, didn't get to synagogue and I spent all day doing tests on this woman, doing blood tests, getting a CAT scan and so on. By the end of the day, all of this while I was fasting, by the end of the day, we finished everything and on Tuesday, she had successful surgery. And all of that is because I got into the right elevator. Unbelievable. Like, and, like what, and- what would have what happened if I just, you know, was tying my shoes, and I said, "I'll take the next elevator. There's four elevators. It'll take a second, You know.
0: And you knew, as an observant Jew, that 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 you do anything, including not going to synagogue on Yom Kippur, if you can save a life, and that's what you did.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: It doesn't matter if it's a Jewish life or a Gentile life. I presume this patient was a Gentile, and you saved her all the all the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. She's some. I suppose she's Christian. I don't know what she was, but she, doesn't she, matter. It's, it's, it's didn't, a, it did not matter life. at all. Right. Yeah.
0: So, uh, Rick, moving from one uh, text, this is always a concluding question. And thank you, as always. I always learn so much and I'm always so inspired and humbled by you every time. But moving from one text, the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he says, I just ran into this man with whom I served in this ward. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, that everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So Rick, in your 30 years of serving as a doctor to the most vulnerable and needy people in the world, what are two things that you've learned about mankind?
1: So good question. Number one is that happiness comes from inside. Happiness is not like eating a lot of ice cream so I'm happy today. Let me give you an example. I got a phone call People just seem to know my cell phone in Ethiopia, even I don't advertise it, but it's, it's out there. They said, we want to bring you a difficult patient and we want to make sure you're going to be there at this hospital at this time. And I said, yes, I'll be there. They said, fine. So I'm at the hospital expecting some sort of difficult patient and they carry this guy in like he's a surfboard. I mean, he was completely flat, like he was in the back of their car, completely flat, and they carried him as if you're carrying a surfboard. And he had a disease called ankylosing spondylitis, which had frozen his body. A well, good thing about his case is at least he was frozen, frozen in a flat situation. But, because sometimes you can be frozen in a very bad situation, but still- How would you get frozen? I mean, not, not, not frozen like cold frozen, but like- Not can't cold move frozen. frozen, but like frozen because your bones fuse. Like oh, your vertebra, okay. your ver- one vertebra fuses between, from bone to bone to bone, between the discs, so you can't move. So um, his shoulders were fused, his spine was fused, and his hips were fused. So he had to be carried around like a surfboard. He lied, on, he slept on his back, and then they would turn him over in the morning in the bed. He had a cutout for his head, and he was an artist, and he could move. He had elbow and he had hand motion, and he would lie there and he would paint. And I said, oh my gosh, what can I do? And they said, is there any way you can get me surgery? Well, I called my friends who were surgeons and they operated and they fixed his hips. Now this guy can walk and he can't walk well, but he can walk slowly. I uh, mean, he's much, much better. But when I first met him, I, I was struck because I, I literally, this is what I said to him. I said, can I say, ask you a question? He said, yeah. And I said, Woody Allen said, there's two types of people in the world, the horrible and the miserable. And I said, you're in this position. You can't move your body and you're, you're, you're quite happy. And he said, I said, you're not horrible and you're not miserable. And he looked at me and he said, doctor, you look like Woody Allen, <laughs> <laughs> which I do. <laughs> so I, I learned this time and time again, where I have these kids who are terribly deformed, terribly... You know, they have so much problems and they're living their life with grace and dignity because they have this inner strength and inner worth. So happiness comes from inside, not from outside. And I I, I, I need to remind myself of this all the time. But anyway, this is something that I learned from my patients.
0: Well, I mean, God bless you and and the work you do. And I I know that uh, our mutual friend, John Fielder, who is my co-founder at African Mission Healthcare and the CEO, he always says if it weren't for financial donors, we'd be working with Band-Aids. Right, as African doctors. So um, if there's anybody listening who would like to be Rick's partner in this sacred work, uh, you can email me at mark at the com. You can email Rick at, uh, Rick, what, what, what email is best for you for that purpose?
1: Just go to my website, rickhodes.org.
0: Just go to rickhodes.org and uh, you can see some of Rick's work and contact him. And uh, the amount of good that can be done with a financial donation to support Rick's worth work through the joint is astonishing it's the best roi there is and uh, thank you
1: now I, I need to answer part b of your question mark
0: okay good i, I just couldn't wait to to get him to get him that uh, addendum to, to part a
1: <laughs> i don't want to shut you off when you're when you're telling people about what i do so part b is we don't know whether something is good or bad for a long time what do you and mean? I, I i was talking to my my son who i you know my one of the first two that i adopted who had tb of the spine and i said to him Jenny what's the worst thing that ever happened to you? And he said, the wor-, and he's a, he's a very positive kid. He said, the worst thing. He said, well, I never knew my father. My mother died. My grandmother died. I had TB the spine. And I said, with a 90 degree angle in my back and I could hardly walk. I said, wait a minute. I said, in your, or he's in what's called an Oromo. I said, in your Oromo culture, if your parents die, you will move into the house of a relative and you'll be like a servant to them and you're going, to be, you're going to be a servant in their house, and you're going to grow up in that house, but you're not going to be treated equally, and you're not going to have a, a bright future. I said, in your case, they saw that you had a bad back, and they dropped you in a church, and that completely changed your life, because then you went to Mother Teresa's mission, you were cared for by the nuns, then I adopted you. I mean, you studied electrical engineering in Boston, and now you're a businessman in Ethiopia. I said, what, you say, what you're saying is something bad, the TB of the spine, actually is the best thing that happened to you. He said, oh, my gosh, I'm really lucky that I had TB of the spine, because if I didn't have TB of the spine, I would be an illiterate farmer in rural Ethiopia right now. Like, it gives you a different perspective on when something good happens or when something bad happens.
0: Right. And, and thank God for, for steering this young man to you.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Rick, thank you, as always, for
0: such a, an extraordinary and humbling uh, conversation. I mean, you are the epitome, the definition of what it means to be a Kiddush Hashem. And it is, it is, Eric and I talk about it all the time. It's, it's such an honor and a pleasure to be your friend. So thank you. My
1: pleasure. Well, thank you very much. And uh, let's stay in touch.
0: Of course. Absolutely.
1: You are the-